There's a handful of powerful and dangerous families that come to mind whenever you think of true crime, most of them being associated with the Mafia. However, in the early 1900s, the Bigham family of Florence had many residents afraid to cross paths with them, and for good reason. My name is Blake Mosley, and you're listening to South Carolina Spook Show. Stay tuned. Most of us have had them. Maybe they leave an old junk car out on their front yard or play loud music at all hours of the night and day. Maybe they let their dog do its business on your lawn without even cleaning it up. There are many ways that a neighbor can prove themselves troublesome to those who have the misfortune to live near them. They may also prove themselves to be dangerous. My maternal grandfather passed down an interesting story of bad neighbors to my mother and eventually her to me that leads to the topic of this post. My great-grandparents, William and Talitha Parrott Keefe, lived near the town of Pamplico in Florence County, South Carolina in the early 1900s. According to family lore, Talitha was sitting at her dressing table one day, brushing her hair, when a bullet flew by her head, barely missing her. The family immediately knew who was responsible, the Bigham family, who were their neighbors. Whenever this story was brought up, I'd always had one big question. Why? The answer was always that they were mean people and wanted all the land that surrounded them. My grandfather, who was born in 1900, claims that any time their buggy was passing the Biggums on the road, they would look straight ahead and not make any eye contact. As I got older, I became increasingly interested to learn more about this family. Were they really as bad as the lore that had been passed down? It did not take me long in my inquiries to realize these tales were just the tip of the iceberg. The Biggums were a bit notorious in that region of South Carolina and would, for a time in the 1920s, be at the center of a horrendous crime. I think it's important as I begin to tell this tale that some of the things that were eventually said about the family may be exaggerations and hearsay. As I read newspaper accounts of the time, I quickly came to the conclusion that sensationalism had been alive and well long before the dawn of 24-hour news. To begin, let's take a closer look at who the Bigham family were. At the time my great-grandparents were their neighbors, the family was made up of the patriarch Leonard Smiley Bigham Jr., also known as Smiley, and his wife, Mary Medora Smith Bigham, who went by the name Dora. The couple had three sons. Leonard Smiley III, Edmund Dalrymple, and Grover Cleveland, as well as two daughters, Letha and Marjorie Ann. The family was considered wealthy and successful planners, and through inheritance and work, had amassed a substantial amount of land in the area. Their success had not come without controversies, however, concerning their morality and violence that seemed to surround the family. Around 1848, the first Leonard Smiley Bigham and his brother were found guilty of beating a neighbor's slave to death 
for which they were each fined $10. There were six witnesses stating that they had heard the brothers discussing their plans to kill the man. Apparently, the slave had been spreading a rumor that the senior Smiley had killed his nephews who had been in his care so that they would not get a part of his father's inheritance. Around 1872, the senior Bigham was again brought to trial for the murder of William Jackson, an African-American man who worked for him on his land. In this trial, he was found not guilty, but many people had their doubts. The wife of the murdered man then brought charges of assault and battery against him, of which he was found guilty. He was sentenced to three months in jail, or to pay a $50 fine. In the end, he did neither, as he convinced his neighbors to sign a petition of leniency attributed to his ill health. The senior Bigham died around 1879 following an accident with some lumber. There were many rumblings among the neighbors, however, that the man's death resembled cyanide poisoning and felt that the junior Smiley may have hastened along his father's death. Leonard Smiley Bigham Jr. was a man with political interests and he held office in the South Carolina legislature for many years. His life, however, was, like his father's, also marked by violence. A little before his mother died in 1890, Smiley Jr. killed an African-American man on his farm. He claimed self-defense and the coroner's jury ruled it justifiable homicide. When his mother passed away, her will divided all the Bigham property between himself and his sister Mary. Smiley Jr. fought the will all the way to the South Carolina Supreme Court, where in the end it was upheld. Strangely enough, a little after this, Smiley Jr. produced another will, which he said was a more recent version, and made him the sole heir. He is said to have thrown his sister and her disabled husband off the Bigham land, and that both died in extreme poverty and degradation. Smiley Jr. passed away in 1906, and his death was surrounded by rumors, like his father, that he had been poisoned. Only this time, it was speculated that the murderer was his wife Dora, who had suffered many cruelties from the man who had married her when she was only 16 and was ready to be rid of him. In 1908, a Smiley Bigham was once again accused of murder, only this time it was Leonard Smiley Bigham III, who had taken over as the patriarch of the family since his father's death. Again, the murder arose out of a dispute with an African-American who worked on his farm, a boy of only 16 years of age named Arthur Davis. The boy's mother stated that Smiley and a group of men, all wearing masks, came and dragged her son from their home. She testified that while she could not see his face, that she recognized his voice. It was also believed that Smiley's brother Edmund was among this group of men. Arthur was later found beaten and a nail had been driven into his head, which had caused his death. Smiley was arrested with two other men and then released on bond to await trial, which was scheduled for October. It is said that at the time of these events, his brother Cleveland, who was a doctor in Harper, South Carolina, was at the family home with his new bride, Viola Ruth Crisp. As the family discussed how to handle the situation, Ruth made it clear to the family that she would not lie about the fact that Smiley was not at home all evening on the night of the murder. How anyone could know what was said in those private family discussions, however, is a bit of a mystery. Perhaps it was thought probable after the next set of unfortunate events took place. In September of that year, Cleveland and his young wife, Ruth, were invited to visit William Avant and his wife at his home in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, 
William Aben was a young, successful farmer of the area. On the night of September 5th, Ruth took a stroll outside on the beach, a common pastime in the area. Her husband and Mr. Avant were said to be sitting on the porch having drinks when they saw a figure moving towards the beach. The men claimed that they called out to the figure, but after receiving no response, Mr. Avant retrieved his gun and fired shots at the figure. Then they approached the figure only to discover Ruth's dead body. Both men claimed that the event was an accident and that there was speculation that they had been spooked by tales of hauntings in the area. They were both arrested and both men were convicted of involuntary manslaughter on October 23rd and sentenced to three and a half years in prison. There were many people in the community who felt that there were still a lot of unanswered questions about the shooting. Ruth's family, who had originally believed her death to be an unfortunate accident, came to believe something else entirely. Her brother, even later, had her body exhumed and buried in her hometown of Mountainville in Lawrence County in a family plot. Her gravestone does not acknowledge her marriage as it refers to her as only Viola Ruth Crisp. Speculation began to grow when Cleveland did not show back up at jail when his bond was revoked as he was awaiting an appeal. The Bigham family had posted his $1,500 bond and had all signed it except for Letha. Newspapers speculated about his whereabouts and family members stated that he was not on the run and that he was only visiting with family in Greenville. During this time, Mr. Avant had turned himself in and there were rumors that he had admitted to family members that he had shot Ruth for money. Was this Cleveland's plan to get rid of a troublesome witness to his brother's crime, even if it meant the death of his wife? After the appeal failed, Cleveland still had not made an appearance and no one was sure of his whereabouts. Mr. Avant also skipped bail, but was later captured in Texas and brought back to serve out his prison sentence. Cleveland was never found. There were rumors that he had left the country, and others claimed that he had a new family in Atlanta. Neighbors were later heard to say that Cleveland made visits to the family over the years. This mystery still remains unsolved. Maybe one day, DNA testing will find unknown descendants, and they will be able to fill in the blanks. The Bigham family did not want to pay the $1,500 bond that they had been left when Cleveland left, so the family decided to deed over five-sixths of the property to their sister Letha, who had not signed the bond, and one-sixth to Marjorie. Letha was married to John Bogan Kane, who was deputy sheriff and not well-liked among the other family members. Smiley III was also accused by a county clerk of tampering with documents, primarily family deeds at the office of the Florence Clerk of Courts. The matter was under investigation, and Smiley feared being charged. This began to get even more complicated for the Bigham family when Letha passed away from pneumonia on February 20th, 1920. At this point, her widowed husband and son had a claim on the Bigham fortune. Her husband also was not showing any signs of cooperation, and there seemed to be a fight on the way. In October of 1920, Edmund returned home with his wife and two daughters after spending about 11 years in Greenville in southern Georgia. Things had not gone well for him over the years, and he had lost a hand in a train accident that many felt had been an insurance ploy gone wrong. He would later tell people that he came home because his mother and sister Marjorie needed him to help with the family's financial situation. Marjorie was also living in the home at the time. She had taught school in Greenville, but after becoming estranged from her husband, Richard A. Black, had moved back into the family home. She had also adopted two young boys around this time, John and Leo McCracken. 
And so, the stage was set for the event that, in the end, would destroy the Bigham family and shock people across the country. Coming up on South Carolina Spook Show, the second half of our deep dive into the notorious Bigham family is up next. And later, with Halloween on the horizon, some of you adventurous folks may be looking for some local haunted attractions to celebrate the spooky season. No problem, I got you covered. Seven haunted sites around the PD right after this break. If you're anything like me, free time is limited. So things like yard work are just not doable. And if you're also like me, you don't even own a lawnmower. That is why All Above Landscaping is the right choice. All Above includes a variety of options when it comes to your landscaping needs, including lawn installation, design, irrigation, debris removal, maintenance, and much more. If you're in the city of Sumter and you're looking for reliable service at a friendly price, give All Above Landscaping a call today. It's 803-464-7414. Mention that you heard this ad on this podcast and you'll get a special discount on your first service. Again, that's 803-464-7414. Call All Above Landscaping today. Monday, January 17, 1921, the Bigham family became headline news in newspapers throughout the country. The Abbeville Press and Banner's headline proclaimed, Florence Tragedy Takes Five Lives, with the byline, L.S. Bigham, for whom officers search, found dead in woods, thought to be suicide following killing of mother, sister, and two adopted children. According to these first reports, Smiley had shot his mother, his sister Marjorie, and her two adopted sons, Leo and John McCracken. It is then said that he ran into the woods where he shot himself in the head. The pistol, which belonged to Edmund, was still in his hand whenever he was found. The shootings were said to have occurred on January 15th at about 3.30 in the afternoon, but Smiley's body was not found until the next day. According to Edmund, he had eaten lunch with his family, and then left the house at about 3.10 p.m. with his wife and children to see a nearby neighbor. When he was driving back to the house about 20 minutes later, he saw his mother staggering out into the yard. He ran to her, and he stated that she died soon after he reached her and had told him that Smiley had shot her. He also stated that at the time he was running to his mother, he saw his brother running into the woods. Two neighbors, T.D. Garrison and Hoyt Rostick, arrived soon after and helped him to get his mother's body into the house. Soon after, the three men found the youngest boy, John, dead near the back of the house. It wasn't until a few hours later that they were upstairs and found Marjorie dead in her bedroom, and then searchers found the older boy, Leo, wounded, yet still alive in the yard. Unfortunately, Leo died the next morning. Edmund also claimed that his brother had been very depressed recently. His brother's body was not found until the next morning when Edmund insisted that the woods where he had seen him run into be searched. However, in the days to come, people involved in the investigation began doubting this story of events. There were definitely reasons to believe that Leonard Smiley Bigham III did shoot his family as he was known to be upset over family money matters and was worried about being charged over the court documents. But on January 20th, Edmund Bigham was arrested based on a warrant sworn out by John W. McCracken, the father of the two murdered children. 
An affidavit was also given by Philip Arrowsworth, an attorney that Marjorie and Smiley had hired. In the affidavit, he stated that he had been hired by the siblings in the spring of 1920. He cast out on the theory that the family was concerned about the bond owed by Cleveland Bigham by stating that the money to pay the bond had already been set aside in the account. He also gave an account of meeting with Marjorie and Smiley on January 8th, at which time Marjorie drew up a new will and made the following statement to him. I signed three blank deeds in the presence of witnesses and left them with Smiley so that if anything happened to me, my father's estate could be handled as my mother and Smiley desired. All these papers were stolen from Smiley. I found them in Edmund's possession. When I attempted to secure possession of them, Edmund threw into a passion and threatened to take my life as well as that of my mother. I gave up all hope of getting the deeds back, and his conduct is such that I am afraid he will kill me at any moment, and I want you to prepare my will, giving all of my property to my brother Smiley and charging him, as I know he will, to take care of my mother and my two little adopted boys. This statement was attached to the will and witnessed by two men. On January 26th, the coroner's jury held its hearing starting at 2 p.m. and ending at 10 p.m. that evening to a packed courtroom. About 20 witnesses were called to give testimony. Some of the witnesses claimed that they heard Edmund make threats against family members. Members of a group of woodcutters who claimed to be out in the woods with both Edmund and Smiley earlier in the day of the murder also testified. The story that emerged from them was that at one point, one of the workers asked Smiley to go look at something in another part of the woods, but Edmund objected and told Smiley that he needed him to stay there with him. After the group of workers had gradually left the two brothers in the woods, it was claimed that a gunshot was heard. Another witness testified to later seeing Edmund come out of the woods alone. At the end of the hearing, after 15 minutes of deliberation, the verdict was made to charge Edmund with the murder of his five family members. On March 11th, Edmund's wife May was arrested in Florence for trying to give her husband a bottle of chloroform in jail. The amount was said to be enough to cause death. However, the bottle was intercepted before it reached him. He would later claim that he asked for the chloroform to help him sleep. Also, during this time before the trial, Edmund's wife had attempted to record a deed at the clerk of courts, but was unable because she did not have the fee required. She stated that her husband had asked her to record the deed as he was in jail. Edmund was arraigned on March 21st, and he pled not guilty. He still stuck by his original story of the events. The prosecutor presented many of the witnesses that had already been presented at the coroner's hearing, while the defense tried to prove the case against Edmund's brother, Smiley. The state also presented witnesses that claimed that Edmund had directed them on exactly where to look for his brother's body. Witnesses also testified that there had been terrible arguments between Edmund and his sister, and that he was heard to threaten her. One worker who had been nearby at the time of his argument had been asked to run to get law enforcement by Marjorie because she was afraid Edmund would kill him. According to the testimony, Edmund then threatened the worker with death if he did as his sister asked. On March 26th, Edmund's wife and 14-year-old daughter, Louise, testified before the court, followed by Edmund himself. Edmund testified that the family had never paid him for his portion of their father's estate. He also stated that the deed he had given his wife to record was given to him by the family as a settlement of their father's estate. 
Edmund stated that he did not know where his brother Smiley's body was and that he only directed to the searchers in the direction he had last seen Smiley heading. On March 28th, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty and the judge immediately sentenced him to be executed by electrocution on April 8th. When asked if he had anything to say before the sentence was read, he said, Nothing except that I am innocent. I know nothing of how this crime was committed. This is the truth, so help me God. That's all I have to say. I wish my mother could have come down and tell how that thing happened. I wish that little boy had lived when I asked Dr. W.H. Poston to save his life. He would have told the same things my wife and I told. Judge, I hope you will give me time so some of the people who testified here against me may have a chance to come forward and tell the truth and not come too late, like Judas making his offering of the 30 pieces of silver. I do hope to say something more, and I hope you will take no exception to it. As far as you are concerned, I have had a fair trial. But if people had had time to think things over and take it up with their God, they would have testified differently. Edmund's attorney immediately filed an appeal, and Edmund was transferred to the state penitentiary to await his hearing with the Supreme Court, his execution being stayed. In June, the appeal was heard in the 12th South Carolina Circuit. Edmund's lawyer, Mr. A.L. King, argued that Edmund should be given a new trial because two of the jurors had made statements about Edmund's guilt before the trial had begun. The presiding judge denied this appeal on June 23rd. In January of 1922, the South Carolina Supreme Court dismissed Edmund's appeal and upheld the previous decision. After this decision, Mr. King then filed an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, which was also denied in April of 1922. In June, Edmund was transferred back to Florence County Jail from death row in order to be resentenced. At this time, Mr. King again asked for an appeal based on new evidence that had come to light. Letters were presented to the court that were said to have been written by Smiley to his brother Edmund, which showed that he was planning to kill his family. On June 9th, Edmund was once again sentenced to death to take place on July 14th. The judge denied the appeal for a new trial, stating that he had no doubt that the letters presented as new evidence were forged. Later the same month, Mr. King filed another appeal with the Supreme Court, which the district attorney vowed to fight. However, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case based on the new evidence. Adding more drama to the story, during the time leading up to the Supreme Court hearing, a man named J.W. Clopton of Leslie, Georgia, wrote a letter to the Florence Daily Times concerning the murder of his grandson, Walter H. Wade. Wade was murdered on the night of August 17, 1916, and his body was thrown into the Flint River. The grandfather stated that he had always thought Edmund was responsible, or knew who was responsible for his murder. The case made its way back before the Supreme Court in November of 1922, but in April of 1923, it was the decision of the court not to grant a new trial. In June of 1923, Bigham's attorney was granted a motion by the state Supreme Court to be permitted to ask the Florence Circuit Court for a new trial. On April 3, 1924, after three years spent mainly on death row, Edmund was granted a new trial. The trial was set to be heard in Conway after his attorney asked for a change of venue. In late September of 1924, the trial opened amidst much drama, escalating when the second witness of the day, George W. Steele, died on the stand from a stroke in front of a packed courtroom. The court was adjourned until the following weekend to allow people to attend his funeral. 
when the court readjourned, the new letters that were alleged to be a confession written before the crimes by Smiley were presented. Also at this time, a brain surgeon named J.D. Smizer, who had examined the body of Dora Bigham after it had been recently exhumed, stated that the wound that she suffered would have been the same as a beheading, thus casting doubt on Edmund's story that his mother was running onto the road and that she spoke to him before her death. Mrs. Bigham's skull was presented as evidence before the court, which you can imagine caused quite a stir. Many in the courtroom felt that Edmund's demeanor was too calm considering his deceased mother's skull was on display. The doctor also testified that it was his opinion from looking at how the gun was held in Smiley's hand and the gunpowder on his temple that this death had not been suicide and that the gun had been placed in his hand after death. Edmund once again took the stand in his own defense. On October 1st, there was more excitement in the courtroom when one of the defense attorneys almost came to blows with one of the prosecution attorneys. Other attorneys on both sides had to intervene to stop the fight. The fight occurred when the prosecution kept trying to bring up other murders that Edmund had been associated with in the past, and the defense kept objecting. After a 10-day trial, the jury once again returned a verdict of guilty after four hours of deliberation. For a third time, Edmund was sentenced to die by the electric chair. The date of his execution was set as October 31st. Once again, Edmund's lawyers filed an appeal to the state Supreme Court, and his execution was delayed until a determination could be made. In October of 1925, the appeal was heard before the Supreme Court. Edmund's lawyers argued that the case had been unfairly tried. First, the witness, Mr. Steele, had given evidence of seeing a bloody handprint in the Bigham home after the murder, but the witness passed away before they were able to cross-examine him. Secondly, they argued that the prosecuting attorneys had brought up prejudicial statements when they questioned Eben about the murders of Arthur Davis on the Bigham land and the murder of Walter Wade in Georgia. The Supreme Court ruled in Edmund's favor in February of 1926, stating that the behavior of the prosecuting attorney had been reprehensible in bringing up murders Edmund had never been charged with. They determined that he would be granted a new trial. After many delays, Edmund's third trial took place in April of 1927. After the jury had been selected but before testimony was heard, the state asked that the jury return a directed verdict of guilty with a recommendation of mercy to bring an end to the long trial process. This was agreed to by both the defense and the prosecution. As part of this agreement, Edmund was sentenced to life in prison instead of execution and returned to the state penitentiary. He was said to have been a model prisoner during his jail time and was released on parole in June of 1960 after 39 years in prison. After his release, he moved to Marion, South Carolina, where he passed away at the age of 83 on June 13, 1962. My grandfather told my mother that he met Edmund during those two years that he lived in Marion. He was visiting someone who was a neighbor of Edmund's and spoke to him briefly to tell him that his family used to be neighbors with his family. He told my mother that Edmund just replied, huh, and did not seem to want to talk to him. For a time, residents of the area swore that there was a Bigham curse. It was said that on the day that Edmund was first sentenced to death, it had been a beautiful sunny day until about 30 minutes after the sentencing when a storm had come in. People would also point to the abrupt death of Mr. Steele on the witness stand. Following the second trial, the judge who had sentenced Edmund to death developed a severe eye infection only a few days later. In September of 1925, 
it was reported that Fritz Cox, who had been living on the Bigham property, died of pistol wounds. Many people even expressed the thought that maybe it would be a good idea to just let Bigham go if he promised to never come back so that no more misfortune would fall upon them. To stoke even more macabre speculation, the remains of a body were found by the tenants of the old Bigham household under the home after Edmund's final trial. The Bigham story became even bigger than its stark reality. As far as I'm concerned, there are still many questions that were left unanswered. What happened to Cleveland? Would a man continue to declare his innocence for 39 years if he was really guilty? Were some of the crimes attributed to Bigham's born out of a dislike for the family? Maybe we will never know. Coming up on South Carolina Spook Show. With Halloween on the horizon, some of you adventurous folks may be looking for some local haunted attractions to celebrate the spooky season. No problem. I got you covered. Seven haunted sites around the PD right after this break. Life isn't always easy. In fact, we all battle depression during life's ups and downs. Music has always been the thing that we can rely on to get us through the tough times we all face. The podcast, When Words Fail, Music Speaks, with host James and Blake, discusses the healing power of music. They interview bands, break down genres, review band biographies, and a lot more. On When Words Fail, Music Speaks, enjoy interviews and lively discussions about musicians and songs you know and love. This is a podcast any music lover will enjoy add when words fail music speaks to your podcast playlist right now available on spotify apple podcast and wherever you listen to podcasts during the civil war philadelphia resident florena budwin dressed up as a man and joined the union army to fight alongside her husband Confederate soldiers captured Budwin and took her to the Florence Stockade, an infamous prisoner of war camp near Florence. She was later buried at Florence National Cemetery, but, according to Tally Johnson, Budwin is not resting in peace. People have reported seeing a blue ball of light over her grave marker and seeing a figure in a dark dress in the cemetery, says Johnson, author of four books about South Carolina ghost lore, including Ghosts of the PD and Civil War ghosts of South Carolina. Real ghosts are much scarier than fake ones, especially if you don't expect to see one. The legend of Florina Budwin is just one of the ghost stories Johnson uncovered while researching his books, and the Florence National Cemetery is one of his favorite spots to see ghosts in the PD region. There are believed to be many ghosts haunting South Carolina in places ranging from private homes and cemeteries to jails and college dorms and the interest in checking out these spooky places spikes around Halloween. Ghost stories are a way to keep the history of the area alive, Johnson says. It's almost like the National Enquirer. Some stories that may or may not be true keep the memory of events and people alive after they should have been forgotten, and the chance of a scare is also great, of course. There is some science behind why we like to be scared. Fear causes the body's sympathetic nervous system to release certain hormones, including adrenaline, that causes a heightened state of mental arousal and a sense of euphoria. After the fear subsides, we feel a strong sense of relief. Don't believe in ghosts? Local haunted attractions like Scream Acres and Creepy Hollow provide all the fright with none of the folklore, proving that there are plenty ways to experience a fright night in South Carolina. Here are seven places to experience ghosts, goblins, witches, and murderous clowns just in time for Halloween. 
Colonel Kolb's tomb. In 1871, British loyalists captured Revolutionary War Colonel Abel Kolb, shooting him in front of his wife and children while his house burned to the ground. The gravesite has mostly been abandoned, except for the ghost of Colonel Kolb, who reportedly still haunts the grounds. He was a true patriot and a true hero for this area, but he died in a very traumatic way. Brian Gandy, director of the Darlington County Historical Commission, told SC Now, if there is any indication of ghostly spirits in this area, Colonel Cole would be a likely candidate. The tomb was vandalized, prompting the Marlboro County Historical Museum to move the obsolisk that marked Colonel Kolb's final resting place to the museum grounds in Bennettsville. Lothers Hill Cemetery Locals have been telling ghost stories about Montrose, a spirit that haunts the cemetery since the 1950s. According to legend, the ghost of Montrose scared visitors so badly it caused them to flee the graveyard and run all the way back to Darlington. The cemetery was established in 1789 on the grounds of the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Ghost hunters have reported seeing ghosts and shapeless shadows and the sounds of children crying in the night. Gandy told SC Now that there are no reports of murder or other crimes that would cause spirits to linger. He added, I can tell you one thing. If I were interred at Lothar's Hill and my spirit still roamed the cemetery, I'd run off every person that came up there. Due to vandalism, many of the gravestones have been moved to the Darlington County Historical Commission for safekeeping. Mansfield Plantation The Mansfield Plantation was one of the largest rice plantations in South Carolina. The original 500-acre property was deeded to John Green in 1718, and the main house was constructed in 1768. Charleston Magazine called Mansfield Plantation a national historic landmark of antebellum authenticity. But paranormal investigators believe the rice plantation turned bed and breakfast may still have some spooky long-term guests. Otherworldly voices saying, don't leave me, were recorded in the North Guest House. You'll have to reserve a room if you'd like to hear voices from beyond, too. Church of the Holy Cross. The historic Anglican church in Stateburg dates back to 1850. Local architect Edward C. Jones designed the church, which was built on land donated by the Revolutionary War General, Thomas Sumter. But it's not just the Gothic Revival architecture and stunning stained glass that attract attention. Ghost hunters have reported a rather unusual paranormal experience in the cemetery. The ghost of a Confederate soldier has been reported walking among the tombstones, while another ghost, a woman dressed in a wedding gown, perches on the tree branches above. My story from the PD is the legend of the haunting of the Church of the Holy Cross, Johnson says. The soldier just walks past and the bride vanishes when she's noticed. It's a great ghost story because of the history connected with the church. Plus, a ghostly bride sitting in a tree? That's creepy and funny. Creepy Hollow. The adventure starts after the sun goes down. Visitors climb aboard an old school bus, take their seats, and prepare for a terrifying ride. Once the heart-pumping ride is over, it's on to a haunted house, graveyard tour, and a hayride, each with scary surprises around the corner. Co-creator Dustin Sims calls Creepy Hollow a thrill-of-a-lifetime experience. People like thrills, and they'll pay for attractions that get their blood pumping, he adds. The haunted attraction in Bishopville has been scaring visitors for 15 years now. Visiting haunted houses across the United States has provided a lot of inspiration and ideas 
and Sims notes that new scares, characters, and attractions are added each season. The latest additions include new scares to the Salem Witch Trial scene that's part of the Haunted Hayride. The Hayride is our last attraction and offers seven deadly spots that will keep customers on the edge of their seats, Sims says. Scream Acres. Every good horror movie includes a scene with clueless teenagers taking a nighttime walk through the woods. At Scream Acres in Bishopville, the walking trail through the woods brings those big screen scares to life. The trail, part of a two-mile haunted hayride, leads to a cabin hidden in the woods where a voodoo doctor casts spells on his patients. It's all a part of a popular haunted attraction that Bobby and Pam Hasabar have been operating since 2000. The couple also transformed an 1890s home into a house of horrors with screams and surprises in every room. And not all of the haunted happenings are man-made. We have people who come to the front office to buy tickets and tell us that they saw the Indian on the horse at the end of the road. There is no Indian on a horse out there, says Pam. Ghost hunters have visited the haunted attraction and recorded the sounds of children laughing and inexplicable light in the woods. Even Bobby admits that he doesn't like spending too much time in the haunted house. You definitely don't want to be in there by yourself at night, he says. Dreadwood Farms. There are monsters living in the 500-acre woods, and their goal is to provide a hair-raising, blood-chilling, truly frightening experience for all who dare to venture into the woods. Ride a bus into the village where the undead are waiting. On a walk through the woods, meet the residents, learn about their ways of life, which include torture, madness, and mayhem. Hopkirk's Hill. During the Revolutionary War, the Second Battle of Camden was fought on Hopkirk's Hill on April 25, 1781. A cannon decapitated a soldier on horseback during the bloody battle. His horse then continued into the Black River Swamp. No one knows whether this was a Confederate or a Union soldier, but his ghost continues haunting the battlefield. The headless horseman is often seen during a full moon. He emerges from the swamp and rides across the battlefield. Johnson believes that battles that date back to the Revolution continue to draw attention, and ghosts, because the, quote, conflict was neighbor versus neighbor, so those emotions and the violence leave a mark. Thank you again for listening to another episode of South Carolina Spook Show. The Bigham family was actually a suggestion uh, from Ashley, who told me about this a while ago, and I have been searching and searching and searching for some type of article that I could I could really pull from that really goes into the detail surrounding this crazy story, especially compared to what we have going on currently with the Murdochs, because um, they were kind of like the, the early 1900s version of the Murdoch family. Uh, a lot of mysterious deaths and uh, power uh, that surrounded this family. So it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's insane that it happened again, you know, a hundred years later. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Ashley, again, for that episode suggestion. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. If you loved this episode or if you think of someone who may enjoy this episode or previous episodes that I've done, uh, if you don't mind, share it with uh, your friends and your family if they're into true crime and paranormal stuff, especially if they are in the state of South Carolina, because there's a lot of great tales out there. Um, I've got tons of material for future episodes that I can't wait to bring to you guys. If you can leave a rating and a review wherever you can, it helps out the show like you would not believe, especially on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it helps me get exposed um, so that others can start listening and kind of can join in on, uh, on all this stuff. So 
Um, And once again, thank you for those who have done so on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can stay up to date with the show by following on all social media pages. It's uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and threads, all at South Carolina Spook Show. And then we're on X. It's at SC Spook Show. If you have any ideas or your own personal stories um, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me, scspookshow at gmail.com, or you can shoot me a message on any of those social media sites that I mentioned before. If you don't mind checking out my other podcast, it is called When Words Fail, Music Speaks. It's all about music and mental health. Do that with my good buddy James Cox. We just added another member uh, to our team, Amanda Dolan, um, who also has a great podcast all about mental health, um, and uh, she's a great fit. And uh, it's been it's been a really fun time doing that podcast with the two of them. So if you don't mind checking that out as well, it's available wherever you listen to podcasts, also on YouTube. Bad Neighbors, The Bigham Family of Florence County was written by Kathleen for palmettoleaves.com. And Haunted PD, Seven Haunted Sites That Are Sure to Provide a Scare was written by Jody Helmer for pdec.com. All articles and stories read on South Carolina Spook Show are the property of their respective authors and is used for purposes of commentary and review. No copyright infringement is intended. Thank you again for listening. I'm your creator and host, Blake Mosley, and this is South Carolina Spook Show. Y'all stay spooky. Thank you.